0: It's titled Overcoming And if you're here today and you hear that And you kind of get like this thought in your mind Or if you're watching online and you you hear Oh, we're in Revelation You kind of get this this picture in your mind Let me kind of maybe put some of that to the side Because I think when we hear like Hey, we're talking about Revelation Like we get this image of like We're going to get to the good stuff We're going to get to the dragon And the thing with lots of horns And the battle of Armageddon We're going to predict things And we're like, "Mm, no, not that. And you're like, oh, okay. Maybe we're going to like, it's like Left Behind with Nick Cage. And we're going to, it's going to be like that. No, no, we don't need more Nick Cage, okay? Or maybe you're sitting there and you're going, oh, it's like that movie, that movie from back in the day called A Thief in the Night. And we're all going to sing, I wish we'd all been ready. And we're going to wave our hand. No. First of all, you don't want me leading singing, okay? So we're just going to put that to the side. That is not what we're talking about today. What we are doing is we are actually investigating the beginning of the book. In the very beginning of the book of Revelation, John is writing these letters from God to these seven churches. And we want to investigate these seven churches to see what God is writing to these believers and to say, Okay, if this is what God is telling them, there has to be a tangible application to my life. There has to be something that, as a follower of Jesus, who is also in a church, who is reading these words from God, divinely given to humankind, that I can impart into my life to help me live more like Jesus. And so that's what we want to look at today. So we're actually going to be in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the church of Thyatira. It's a great name. Don't ever call your kid that. Um, But it's like one of those churches that, like, it it looks like they're doing great, but then, like, within the span of a couple verses, we're like oh. But before we even get to that, I want to pose a couple of questions to you. And here's the first one. The first question I want to ask you is this, is when was the last time you compromised on something? Like, just think about that for a moment, okay? Some of you compromised this morning because the compromise was letting your teenager drive you here and hoping you wouldn't die, right? And for all of you students, like, we know. Your parents drive the same way. It's okay. It's not just you, okay? But, like, the reality is, like, you compromised on that. A lot of you prayed. Um, but, like, there's another piece, right? Maybe, maybe a compromise is, like, lunchtime. And maybe you have this craving for, like, a really good steak. But somebody else who we won't name publicly wants McDonald's. And it's okay. We can, we can shame them after the fact because McDonald's should never be had, right? But, like, maybe the compromise is going, we'll have a burger that we purchase and grill so we don't die, right? Or maybe maybe the compromise is going, you're at work and, and you've been working on this project and a teammate comes and they're like, hey, like, this part of the project, we have to tweak, we have to change, we have to adapt. And the compromise is rather than saying, no, it's my way or the highway, you work together on it. right? Compromising in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's actually, it's actually a neutral term. Compromising could be both negative or positive. It depends how we use it. And so a lot of times we think about compromise, and we think about it in ways of, like, working together. But let me ask you a follow-up question, okay? When does compromising become unhealthy or negative? Because the reality is it can. There are times when we compromise, and we can compromise on things that are not healthy, right? Like, and arguably, that's what's going to be happening in this passage, is the Apostle John is writing to the Church of Thy- Tyre, and he's like, Y'all, you've compromised on your faith. And what we're going to see is that John is challenging this church because they have said, hey, we're going to let in ideas that are antagonistic or problematic towards what our faith tells us. And I think it's easy when we hear that to go, okay, but that's not me, right? Like, I'm not going to compromise. Like, this, this church is probably way more messed up than I could ever hope to be, right? We just default to that. But let me, let me kind of be really honest with you and transparent and tell you, like, this does happen to all of us at different points. In fact, it happened to me. My very first job in ministry, um, I was literally paid part-time to be pulpit supply for a church. And what that means is I was basically a glorified volunteer, okay? And I, I was at this small, teeny-tiny church in New Jersey. And when I say small, I mean, like, eight people small. All right. And I was paid to do pulpit supply there. I was really excited. It was the first church God had ever placed me in, in vocational ministry. Super, super excited. But the problem was, right, when you're a part-time pastor, you usually don't make enough to live. And so I had to find a secondary job to supplement my income. And I found that one of the best jobs I could do that seemed to go hand-in-hand with ministry was to do collegiate security. And I was like, this works, right? I can do this. And and what I found out is when you get into the privatized security sector, the money tends to be pretty good. In fact, when you work for a college, a private college, and they just have lots of money to throw away, um, they just decide to pay their security people pretty well. And I found, for me, it was really easy to kind of move up through the ranks. And within a few months, I went from just being a patrol officer to actually being a corporal and overseeing different teams. But the sad part was, for me, in order to gain financial success, I had to compromise on some of the things I held dear. Because if you're a security officer, the more tough you are, the stronger language that you use, the more direct and critical you are of people as you are catching them doing things they should not. The more that your supervisors go, you're good at your job. And I will never forget, I used to work the midnight shifts. So I worked typically from midnight to 8 a.m. And I usually worked on weekends as well. So like Saturday and the Sunday morning, we would each take, each of us as officers would take a two-hour stint in one of our guard shacks. And I remember sitting there, and that became my place where I would practice my sermons. Which when you, when you kind of like visualize how crazy I looked, yes, that's me. Because I'd be standing in the guard shack, doing what I do up here, moving back and forth, making hand gestures, but nobody could hear me. I looked psycho. And people were just like driving by, and I'm like, they don't care, they don't know what's going on. But I will never forget the day one of my officers, whose name was Tony, came up to the guard shack behind me, and I didn't recognize, I didn't know he was there, which probably says a lot for my ability as a security officer. Um, But he came up, and and he knocks on the door, he goes, what are you doing? look like you're crazy or you that you're having a medical episode and I was like oh take a pick. um and I said I'm practicing my sermon he goes I'm sorry what I was like oh I'm preaching this Sunday he goes you and I was like yeah I'm a pastor <laughs> no you're not and I remember sitting there and in that moment when I tell you it was like a gut punch I felt the wind go out of my lungs, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a really crappy representative of Jesus right now, and I just remember standing there looking at Tony, and he goes, can you tell me what you're preaching on? And I remember wanting to say no because I was like, man, I'm going to look like the biggest hypocrite, and what I failed to realize right away was God was actually using that moment not just for me to grab a hold of my heart, but he actually used it as an opportunity to reach my team. Because it forced me to kind of be reevaluating how I was living my life. But then what happened is Tony, because Tony is a very, very like, typical Italian-American from New Jersey. Tony went and told everybody on our team that I was a pastor after that. And he goes, you have to hear Nick talk. I was like, no, no you don't. And what happened is my team was like, hey, Like, at 2 a.m. in the morning, you're down there practicing. Can we come and hear your sermon? And I was like, what? And I was like, guys, I'm practicing. They go, we know, but we don't get to go to church, Nick. Because we go home and we go to sleep on Sundays. And it actually became an opportunity for me to share the gospel with my team. And it's like, you know, but here's the crazy thing. For me, I didn't even think about that. I had compromised on my belief in Jesus. Because to me, it was about making money. It was about having financial stability. And everything about my faith became secondary. And what God showed me in that moment is like, man, if you, if you make your faith secondary, I'm still going to use you. But imagine if we hadn't compromised on it. Imagine what could have happened prior to that moment. And I share that story with you not, not because I'm like, wow, look how far I've, got, I've come. Because please, talk to my wife. I have a long way to come. I'm still working on the pride and the issues in my own life. I share that story with you to, to empathize and to say, look, I get it. When we talk about compromising on our faith, it's not an easy conversation. It doesn't feel good. But the reality is if we come face to face with our own humanity, our own brokenness, in light of the grace that God bestows upon us, We can understand where we need to grow and mature and see how God can use it in really powerful ways. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to investigate how this happened, what this looked like at the church of Thyatira. And to say, okay, what can we pull from this? What application can we take and put in our lives so that we don't fall into that trap of compromise as well? So let's check this out. Beginning in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 18, John writes this. He says, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write this. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star this is a heavy passage thank you george Um, but like this is this is one of those texts like where you look at it like i think at a cursory reading we're like okay but then when like you dig into this there's some heavy imagery here there's some dark stuff here stuff that you're like oh we need a minute right but like let's 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 begin to unpack this a little bit because in that first part of the text Like, the church of Thyatira, they seem to be doing pretty good, right? If you get up to verse 19, it seems like they're doing a lot of things right. Like, if this letter stopped at verse 19, this would be a great letter. Every church would want this, right? Because when we look at the passage, like, they do a lot of things well. They love people well. That's a good quality. Churches should love people. When people come into our, our church, they should be aware that we love them regardless of who they are, where they've been, what they've done. Church of Tyra, they did good at that. They were faithful. They gathered together. They served together. They cared for their community. They fellowshiped with one another. Good qualities. They served other people, right? Just like we did two weeks ago. They went out and they served their community. They cared for their people. They cared for their towns. Like, they did a good job. And they also endured difficult moments and persecutions. This is a good thing. And again, I think if we stopped here... We'd be like, this is such a good church. We should all be a part of this church, right? But then it's like you get past verse 19, and you're like, whew, right? Because it's not just that they do a lot of things well, right? It's a good thing to have a church that does a lot of things well. But to be frank, if we're not modeling Jesus holistically, we have missed the mark, right? It's one thing to be like, oh, this is a church who loves people. But when you show up, oh, they're kind of crappy individuals, right? Like, that's not healthy. And the church of Thyatira, they have this issue, right? It's that they still had areas to work on. They were willing to compromise. They were willing to compromise their faith when it was convenient or beneficial for them. And let me unpack this just a little bit for you, okay? Because I I think from a cursory reading, we don't understand why this is happening. But the church of Thyatira, they're in a part of Asia at this point in history that is a big trade area. And so for them, for them, in order to prosper financially, socially, and economically, it behooved you to be a part of these different guilds, these different trade guilds. And you were a part of these trade guilds, and you got certain things of being a part of the guild. Right? You had a community of people who supported you. You had people who had your back. Like how well the guild did financially helped you to do well financially as well. And here's the issue, though, okay? It wasn't just that these trade guilds existed, okay? It wasn't just that these trade guilds had, like, this opportunity for advancement. There was a certain religious aspect to them as well. That if you were a part of different guilds, each guild would have their own idol, their own god that they worshipped. And as a part of coming together in this guild, you would actually come together and you would have time... Where you would have a feast and you'd celebrate together. And then you would offer sacrifices to that false god. But it gets even a little bit more broken. Because it wasn't just that they were offering food to idols. Um, When this passage talks about Jezebel and the sexual immorality, um, some scholars would actually say that, that what would happen in these trade guild settings is that they would actually be bringing temple prostitutes to these certain gods, and they would be engaging in sexual morality with them. So these believers who follow God have now said, hey, I'm going to come and be a part of this community, but I'm willing to kind of hedge on my faith a little bit, because it's beneficial to me. They were willing to say, hey, like, I know that that the Bible says I'm only supposed to worship the one true God. But this helps me succeed. Hey, I know the Bible says, like, I'm I'm supposed to hold to, like, a biblical ethic on sexuality and marriage. But I'm going to hedge on that because if I do this, like, this is beneficial for me. Financially, I can make gains. And, like, the problem with this is, like, They were willing to take what they knew to be true, what they knew to hold on to, to be the defining aspect of their identity and their lives, and they were willing to hedge it. They were willing to compromise on it because it was financially beneficial. And I think it's easy to read this text and to look at this passage and to go, shame on you, Church of Thyatira shame on you we would never do that you're right i would hope that when you go to your workplace tomorrow that you don't have like a stone image that you guys are offering food to you're right i would hope that doesn't exist maybe it does i don't know where you work okay but can we just be honest real quick we have our own idols in our own lives that we worship One of the big ones in our society that we are willing to compromise on our faith for is the idol of busyness. We're willing to say we're too busy for God. We're too busy to spend time with him, to grow in our faith. We're willing to kind of push that to the side and to say church and fellowship and growing in our faith is a second tier aspect of my life. Or how about the American dream, right? Financial success, have the house, have the two cars, have the right number of kids, right? Have all the things, have a dog that's perfect and doesn't poo in the house, right? Have all the things. But in order to do that, I have to work all the time. I have to be willing to compromise on my integrity and my honesty at times. Even though those are characteristics that are reflective of the Savior, right? I'm willing to compromise on. I think it's really easy to to look at this church and go, shame on you, you, bad Christians. But I think that's a defense mechanism. Instead of looking here and doing the hard work here and going, man, are there places in my life that I've compromised on my faith in? It's really easy to be critical. I think part of the reason that John is writing these words from God to this church and to us is to help us to be thoughtful. To help us be reflective, to be intentional in looking inward and going, where are the areas I need to shore up? Are there struggles in my life? Areas where I'm willing to compromise? To put Jesus on the back burner. And it may be something that, that you don't think other people know about. It may be something that is... Secret, something that's private, or it may be something that's public. But the question is, how far are we willing to let that compromise go? Because if you look at what happens later in this text, like John, John doesn't just go, hey, you guys suck at doing this, right? It's really easy sometimes to critique people and not offer help and assistance. <laughs> And yet John, with God's words, he says, hey, let me give you guys some guidance and some correction. And and what he says here to the church of Thyatira is really telling. He mentions in verse 22, he goes, I will cast her, talking about Jezebel. This reference to this, this sexual immorality, this reference to this, this willingness to compromise on their faith. He goes, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead. I don't know if you missed that the first time we read it. But, like, that's heavy. And I think what John is doing here is I think John is playing with imagery a little bit. Because... If you think about the, this act in the church that these, these believers are willing to engage in, like, sexual immoral behavior, he goes, I'm going to throw you onto a bed of suffering. I think what John is doing here, he's going, look, if you want to have a party couch, I'm going to give you a bed of, of suffering and pain. And I think John is, is playing with words here to help them remember, like, hey, you're, you're struggling, and this is the reality. Is that the more that you engage with compromising behavior, the more pain and hurt it will have not only in your life, but the fallout will be generational. When he talks about these kids being struck dead, like, I think the reality is we need to understand as adults, as parents, that our behaviors, our decisions, our compromises don't just affect us. They affect everybody behind us. Like, I have the privilege of working in student ministries. So I think it's the best part of, of the church is working with younger generations. <coughs> Mostly because they're cool and I'm not, and it makes me feel cool to be with them. But in all actuality, like, the one thing that I tell everybody is, like, when you come in to serve with children or with youth, they watch you. They see your lives, not just what you are doing in person. They see it online. They see you at your jobs. They hear how you talk about them. And they will mimic them. And the reality, I think, that John is getting at here is this understanding that, like, what we do, whether in public or in secret, does not just affect you. It affects everyone around you. And I think John uses some pretty strong imagery here to convict us to say, man, is this really the road, the trajectory that we want to go down? And I think it's meant to challenge us to think broader, deeper, about how we live our lives. In fact, it's not just that he offers compromise or or correction to those who compromise. He also gives guidance because he picks up, again, he says to the, he says, now I say this to the rest of the church in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose another burden on you except To hold on to what you have until I come. What I love here is that the guidance is live like Jesus. Which is arguably where we struggle the most. John doesn't go, hey, let me give you more things to do. He's not like, here's the cosmic checklist that can get you into heaven. He goes, here's what you need to do. Follow Jesus. Keep doing that. That stuff in the beginning of the passage, keep doing that. But do it holistically. Apply it to your entire life. Don't settle. Don't settle for just doing it in in pieces. Make it who you are. It's your identity. And then he wraps up by giving this promise and reward for those who follow Jesus. Because here's the thing. I I think, like, John's not dumb, but I also know God's not dumb. And I think what happens here is um, God kind of understands how the human heart works. Because if you go back to the beginning, this was like financially like, smart for this group of individuals like, to get involved in these trade deals, even if they had to the compromise. And I think Jesus realizes that. I think that, that's understood by God by how he writes this. Because the reality is he's like, he knows our response is going to be, okay, so if I follow you, what do I get? Because that's the way the human condition works. It's the way our brokenness drives us to think. If I do X, what will be my reward that is Y? Right? These these individuals got involved in the trade guilds. They had to compromise, but it was financially beneficial for them. And he goes, you want to know what your reward is? You who so desperately strive for success, for notoriety, for financial stability. Your success, your reward is reigning in eternity. You desperately want financial stability here, and you fail to realize you can't take it with you. So I'm going to give you the financial stability that is eternal, and that's reigning alongside my son. I don't think it's happenstance that 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 verse is thrown in there. I think John is intentionally drawing us back to this understanding that it's not about this. I looked at my students this past week, and I made the declaration to them. I was like, if this is it for our world, this sucks. Like, if our hope is in this world, I mean, please, turn on the news, folks. Like, if our hope is in this, man, we've missed the mark. And I think what John is drawing us to in this conclusion is saying, your hope is not in the financial success that this world says is what you desire. Your reward, your future, your greatest success is eternity with God where you reign as a co-heir. I would trade all the wealth in this world to have wealth that supersedes it all. I think John is being very pointed here to this church saying you were willing to compromise financially to succeed. You don't have to do that. And I think the same is true for us. You may not be compromising in an area that's financial, but you may be compromising on your faith and your integrity for a variety of reasons. This world tells us that success looks very different. This world tells us that there are things that we should be running after that are contrary to the gospel. And we're willing to hedge on it. Because this world tells us to. And instead, what we need to be willing to do is to live as people who are not going to compromise. You see, we've been called to something. Something greater than than financial stability. Than than being the the popular kid in school. Than having all all the little acronyms and little letters that come after our names. Like there's something greater than that. And that is what John is reminding us of. You see, we aren't called to this temporary place to find success and acclaim and notoriety here. We are called here to live counterculturally. We are called to live as people who embody the kingdom of heaven. To live as people who have the power of God in them that allows them to be kingdom movers and world shakers as we point people to Jesus. And when we settle for the things of this world, we're settling for something that is lesser than. And John's going, that's not who we are. Remember, you are heirs. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are people who embody the kingdom of heaven to this world. And while we may do things that this world's going to look at and go, that is so bat crap crazy. Why would you pass on that promotion? Why Why would you encourage that person to take it over you? Why aren't you contributing to the bullying and the gossiping that everybody else is doing on this one kid? Why why are you willing to not, like, hedge on your taxes, even when it means a little bit of a better return? And people are going to look at you and go, that seems crazy. And you're going to go, you know what to this world? It is because there's something better. So what do we do with all this? What's our response to this? I think there's just a few things I would encourage you to think critically about. And the first is this, is to seek to grow in your faith. I would assert that this church in Thyatira kind of became static in their faith. They had a few things they did really well. Good things. Nobody would say those are bad. They loved well. They served well. They cared about their community. They did a good job there. But it was just kind of status quo. Folks, part of, like, us being followers of Jesus is continuing to grow day in, day out as we seek to be more like Jesus. Because I'm going to give you a little bit of, like, a a little secret here. We ain't going to get it all right because we're not perfect, which means we always have places we can work on. We always have places that we can, like, continue to grow and mature in. And so we should be actively seeking to grow in our faith. Spending time in community with other believers, being challenged to to get into God's word and digest what it means and apply it to our lives. We should be seeking to grow in our faith, but we should also be taking a temperature check of our lives and our hearts. And here's what I mean by that. Only you know what's in here. Let me use myself as an example, because back when I was working at that church and doing security, I thought I had everybody fooled. I was so good at being two-faced. I was so arrogant to think that I could hide it. And when Tony called me out on it, I had to do some heavy lifting. I thought I could keep it a secret, and the reality is I think God was like, you know, it's not a secret from me, and I'm going to use your buddy Tony to help you realize where you've messed up so let me encourage you to take a look at your own heart and to say, hey, have there been areas in my life where I've been willing to compromise? Are there areas where perhaps I've been willing to, to put my relationship with Jesus on a back seat to advance in whatever capacity that looks like? Take that check. Check your heart. Check your mind. And check your lives and see if you're doing okay. But then it's not just going and saying, okay, well, yeah, maybe I have some areas to work on what what human doesn't, right? Like, part of our response as followers of Jesus is not just to identify areas that we wrestle with. It's to work on them and confess them. Like, it's one thing to go, oh, man, like, I'm really bad in this area. My B, right? That doesn't do squat. We are told as followers of Jesus that when we acknowledge that there are areas in our lives that are broken, that need to be worked on, that we are to go to God and confess them because he is faithful and just to forgive us of those areas. We need to go and say, God, like, I'm sorry that I've compromised here. This was a mistake. Please accept my apology. I want to do better. I want to reflect you to this world. We're called to confess where we've been compromised. But there's one other thing I want to point out here, and I think it's something that we might have missed in this passage. And it's to care well for our brothers and sisters who are struggling. If we go back to the very beginning of this text, and we talked about how these these individuals were getting involved in these trade guilds for financial success and to advance. I think if we go back to what Jesus said about caring for those who are hurting, about caring for those who have less, About exactly what we saw at the end of that Beyond the Walls video, right? Caring for orphans, for those in prison, for those who don't have. I would assert to you that maybe perhaps part of the reason these individuals went to these trade guilds is because they did not have. And one of the areas that church could really shore up on was caring for those who did not have. And I'm not saying that we have to take responsibility for our brothers and sisters and the decisions they make. That's not what I'm saying. But rather than judge people because they mess up, perhaps we should look at their hearts and have asked, how can we walk with rather than be critical of? Because I think it's really easy sometimes to to throw judgment at like the Church of Thyatira and other Christians that we see messing up. But like rather than do that, what if we looked at the heart of the issue and said, how can we help? How can we care for our brothers and sisters who are in a tough spot? What would it look like to be the tangible hands and feet of Jesus to the the communities that we serve? And I'll be honest, that takes a lot of faith in multiple ways. But imagine if we embraced that and what our community would look like and how we would affect this area for the kingdom of heaven. Today, as we get ready to move into our time of communion, we're actually going to be talking about confession. Like part of of communion is actually engaging in in that very thing that we just talked through. Part of communion is acknowledging that, that we are broken people. It's doing exactly what we just talked about. It's doing that heart check and saying, okay, God, like where am I at? Where am I at in my life right now? Are there things that I've compromised on? But communion isn't just about identifying. It's about being willing to confess what we have done. And as we get ready to enter into communion, the bands going to come out here, and they're actually going to lead us in the song. And I want to put a, a question up on stage for you guys just to think through critically. Is what do you need to confess or give back to God? Because here's the thing, communion, like, yes, we're going to pass around what looks like a little snack, but it's so much more than that. The ushers are going to come through here in just a few moments and hand you a, a plastic cup that it just takes forever for you to open and get the wafer out of. But it's more than that. You see, communion is about remembering the the bodily sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf so that we don't have to live in that brokenness. It's about understanding that that God has said, look, I know you can't do it. You will continue to mess up, so I'm going to pay the way for you because you cannot. And so he goes, look, here's a simple way for you to remember it. Share in the meal." sharing the meal where you remember, and you take this, this piece of bread, this dry little wafer, and you remember that my body was broken for you. And you take this cup of grape juice, and you throw it back, and in that moment you remember that I poured out my blood for you because it had to cover your sins. So when you compromise, and when you come to confess, you know that I am faithful because my life, was the greatest sacrifice this world has ever seen. And it wasn't just that Christ gave this sacrifice so we could be like, oh, I messed up and now I get my get out of hell jail-free car. No, it's about him dying for you so you can have a life that is radically altering, a life that shakes this world to its core, a life that transforms you to be more like him. And as you embrace communion, as you take time to just pause... And reflect and say, God, I'm sorry. You can rest with assurance that he goes, my child, I forgive you and I love you. Grow to be more like me. So what we're going to do now is the band's going to lead us in a song.